So I want to talk with you about the battle for your mind. The battle for your mind. And it's in our mind that the enemy can gain a place of influence if we allow him to. He can gain a place of kind of control over our life. And even when he goes after our job or our finances or our body or whatever it is, his aim is to go after our mind. And he just uses those other things to get us bound up in fear or in despair or, or to get us doubting the word of God so that he can get a place in our mind. Now, we're actually made up of three parts. We're made up of a body, we're made up of a soul, and we're made up of a spirit. And so this body, it's the mortal part of who we are. It's perishing. The Bible says that it's appointed for all men to die once. So this body, we know, is not going to live forever. But our soul and our spirit is the eternal part of who we are. And even though they're very closely connected, they're actually two different parts of us um, with two different distinct functions. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so we see here that just like joints and marrow are very closely connected, so is our soul and our spirit but it is different. And so I want to um, share with you, our spirit is the innermost part of who we are. It's here in our spirit, that's where we connect with God, that's where we have communion with God. The Bible actually says that it's only by the spirit that we can discern the things of God. But when we're born, we're actually born into this sin-filled world with dead spirits, which is why the Bible talks about and Jesus says that you have to be born again. And that's when we accept Jesus into our heart as our Lord and Savior, that the Holy Spirit comes on the inside of us, our spirit is reborn, and our communion and connection with God is reestablished. And then we have this part of our soul. And our soul is made up of our mind, our will, and our emotions. And this is where the boundaries that define our own self-understanding are. If you think about it, we know ourselves by what we feel, by what we think, by what we want, right? All of that is within our soul. And the Bible teaches that it's this part of who we are that has to be reconstructed. Our bodies are perishing, they're going away. Once we accept Jesus into our heart, our spirits are restored and they are redeemed, but our soul needs to be renewed. Romans 12:2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That, yet, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So as our mind is renewed, then our will and our emotions will follow suit, right? The Bible in many places talks about the victory or the failure that we experience originates in our mind before it shows in our actions. Wouldn't you agree? So if this is true then wouldn't it make sense that we should put a lot of emphasis that it's highly important for the quality and health of our thoughts to be good? Right. Because if we don't recognize that the importance of fighting and winning in the realm of our minds, then we are going to develop behaviors that are not what we want for our life. And so what I want to do with you today is I want to take you through the life of Joseph, and I want to pull out a few things that we can see in his life that can help us to be battle ready. Because if you don't know, 
we are in a battle. The enemy doesn't every once in a while come and maybe will come at you. The enemy is out to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The Bible says that he roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Those are strong words. And that's a strong language. And I don't think Jesus was underestimating our enemy when he was saying these things. He was trying to get us to understand, listen, don't take this battle lightly. Be prepared, be armed, and be ready. So before we get into the life of Joseph, let's pray. If you'll bow your heads with me. Dear Father God, I just thank you so much that you are here with us. I thank you, God, that you inhabit the praises of your people and that when we lift our voices to you, Lord God, that you come and you sit in the midst of us. I thank you that you know us intimately. You know every battle that we're going through. And even though I don't know and I can't give advice on what is needed, Lord God, you know and have made a way of escape for every single person in this room. And God, I pray that you would speak to each person. We open our hearts to you and we open our minds to you, Lord God. Please speak so that we can hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, Joseph, he comes on the scene in Genesis 37. And Joseph is the son of Jacob, who is from the infamous Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Have you all heard of them? That's like all throughout the Bible. This is the highlight of people that God talks about, the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Joseph is the son of Jacob. Now, Jacob's name was actually changed to Israel. God changed it, and that was what began the nation of Israel. So I guess he was the first Israelite, right? Joseph, he was the 11th out of 12 sons of Jacob. Did you guys hear that? Number 11 out of 12 sons. So he had 10 older brothers. And back in that day, you know, the firstborn got lots of things. And then if there was leftover, it went to the second. If you were a third, maybe beyond that, you got nothing. Like you had to make your own way in the world. But it was a little different for Joseph because Joseph was actually the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. He loved Rachel very much. And so Joseph actually had a lot of affection and a lot of attention from his father. His father showered him with expensive gifts. And because of that, his 10 older brothers were jealous. And the Bible actually said that they couldn't even talk peaceably to him, that they hated him. And so Joseph, when he was a teenager, he had a dream, two dreams, actually, and he decided that he was going to share these two dreams with his brothers. And once we read the dreams, you're going to realize it probably wasn't the best choice to share these dreams with his brothers. So let's open our Bibles and read starting in Genesis chapter 37. I was going to read from my Bible, but I realized that I can't read it very good. Approaching that 40 mark that my mom always told me about that I thought would never happen. So I had to blow it up big on my page so I could read it accurately. So let's start in verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gather around mine and bow down to it. Okay, let's just pause. He told this to his angry brothers that hated him. I, I, I'm going to say it might not have been the best choice to tell his brothers. He was 17, though, so we give him a break. Let's read on. 
His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream. And again, didn't learn from his first mistake. He told his brothers and he said, listen, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well as his brothers, his fathers rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? He's, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in his mind. And so while Joseph probably did not make the best choice in sharing this, these dreams with his brothers, what we can pull out of his life is that he knew that he heard from God. And he believed what God had said to him, so much so that he was willing to share it to people who probably would not respond well to the dream. And we have to be that sure of the word of God in our life. We have to know that the word of God is true. We live in a society where there's not really absolute truth, where there's a lot of relativism. My truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. And if it's different, somehow it's both truth. But when we live like that, then the enemy can come in and he can sow seeds of deception and of lies in our mind. The Bible says in Luke 6 that everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundations on the rock. That way when the floods came and the storms came and the streams broke, the house still stood. And what Jesus is telling us, it's on the truth of the word of God that we know that we can stand sure. We know that we have a foundation that when the trials of the enemy come, it will not rock us. It will not knock us off our game. If we build our foundation on anything else, then it's open game for the enemy. The door is open. He can come and say, actually, this is truth. Or actually, that is truth. And he can lead us wherever he wants us to go. We see after Joseph shared these dreams that his brothers were extremely angry, so much so that they concocted a plan to kill him. They were murderously angry. And so they wound up actually going through with the plan. They threw him in a pit. They were going to leave him there so that he could die there. Um, what an awful death that they had planned for him. What, to starve? They were going to, on this coat that his dad gave him, splatter blood and tell his dad, look, the wild beasts must have got him. Now, I believe that God intervened on behalf of Joseph because suddenly the brothers saw these Ishmaelite traders coming and they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why not actually gain from this whole situation? We're going to sell him to these Ishmaelites. We'll make some money and we'll be rid of them at the same time. Now I have a question to ask you. If this was you, you're 17 years old, your 10 older brothers who are supposed to love you and protect you and take care of you, hate you, try to kill you, and then sell you into slavery, what would you be thinking? What would your thoughts be like? I know mine, and I have two sisters in this room, three sisters in this room. I don't know that we would ever talk again. Like, I might have a few plans of my own if that's what happened. And if I wasn't there, then I would be in such a place of self-pity and in depression. But let's see how Joseph responded to this. If we go to Genesis 39, 
verses, starting in verses 1, says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. Let's pause. Does that sound like a bitter, angry man or someone who's wallowing in self-pity? I mean, the Bible says that, the, that Potiphar saw that everything that he did was prosperous, that he succeeded in what he did, so much so that this Egyptian, who they didn't really like the Hebrews. I mean, this was the, the slave people lower than who they were. He put everything in his care. Let's continue on from verse 5. It says, From the time that he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessings of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. And so Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. And he did not even concern himself with anything except for the food he ate. We can see that Joseph did not allow his thoughts to be consumed with what we would expect him to of anger and of self-pity. But he trusted in God. And he allowed the peace of God to permeate everything he did. He did not allow his situation to change who he was and who God called him to be. The Bible says in Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And so we see that if, if we keep our minds focused on God, even in the worst of situations, that God will keep us in peace. And if you've ever experienced the peace of God, like truly experienced the peace of God, you know that it's in that moment that really it seems like everything is going to be okay. No matter what you're going through or what you do, it's in that moment when God's peace is resting on you, you know that everything is going to be okay. And this is saying that we can walk in that. It's not just a momentary thing. That we can actually walk every day, no matter what we're going through, in the peace of God, as long as we'll keep our eyes focused on him. Isn't it amazing that Joseph began in a wealthy, prosperous family? He began in freedom. He had all of that ripped away from him, but he did not allow his thought life to be hindered by it. But yet we live in a society where there's so many of us, America, like wealthiest nation in the world, like we live in luxury. And maybe we compare to other people who have more, but as a nation, we live in luxury. Yet so many people are miserable in their minds. They're wrestling in their minds. They're tormented by fear and anxiety and depression and all kinds of other things. How can that be? Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when we keep our minds focused on him, his peace will rest on us. And when his peace rests on us, it will guard our mind. It will guard our mind. I am so grateful for a God that doesn't say, hey, go fight your battle on your own. That he realizes that on my own, I am sure to fail. 
And that he doesn't say, well, I'll give you a little, and then you got to figure out the rest. But he says, listen, just focus on me. Hey, look here. Look at me. Keep your eyes right here, and I'm going to give you peace, and I'm going to guard your mind. And that battlefield that the enemy is fighting for, he won't be able to get through. We can't let our trials and our situations cause us not to rest in God's peace so that our mind can stay guarded. Now, Joseph, he worked for Potiphar for about 11 years. That's a long time to work as a slave with a good attitude, hoping that God's going to do something. He gave you a promise, and we're not seeing sign of that promise. But Joseph had a good attitude, and everything that he did prospered. But his transition out was kind of an interesting one. All of a sudden, Potiphar's wife started having eyes for Joseph. And I had to ask myself a little rabbit trail, it's been 11 years. All of a sudden you start having eyes for Joseph? Are you a new wife? Does Potiphar have a bunch? I don't know. But why all of a sudden, 11 years later, does she decide that that's who she wants? So she began to make advances at him, and Joseph kept refusing her. And I had to ask myself, you know, here it said earlier in the verse that, that Potiphar didn't even concern himself with anything that was under Joseph's care. So this was a real temptation. I mean, we don't see that Joseph had a wife. It's been 11 years. Here this woman is throwing herself at him. I mean, you know, what would some people do? But let's see how Joseph responded. In, ver in Genesis 39, verses 8 through 9, it said that he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. He has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph recognized, not only would I be sinning against him, but man, that is sinning against God. And Joseph decided to walk in integrity. Joseph didn't compromise on what he knew was right. And see, sometimes we feel like if it's a small thing, if we just compromise a little on integrity, that it's not really that big of a deal. That maybe if we just say that small lie, or we just cheat in that small way, that it's not a big deal. But what that does is it opens a small door to the enemy in our life. And then the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts us. But if we choose to continue to walk in that thing, then it begins to cloud our mind. That truth that we can stand on all of a sudden seems really fuzzy. The wisdom that we need for every situation all of a sudden becomes elusive. And we begin to allow the enemy to come in. The favor of God will lift from our life because God cannot bless a life that continues to walk in repeated sin. But Joseph continued to refuse her, and the story goes that eventually her pride must have been really wounded because she decided that she was going to accuse him of seducing her. And she did that. She had him thrown in prison. Can you imagine what Joseph must have been thinking? God, you gave me a dream, and then I get nearly killed and then sold. I work as a slave for 11 years. I maintain my integrity in a very tempting situation, and then I get thrown in prison. Another opportunity for Joseph to allow his thoughts to become overcome with anger or self-pity 
how unfair it was. How many times, I, I asked myself, how many times have I thought that? This is so unfair. But if we stay in that place, then it'll consume us and it'll keep us from what God has for our life. The next several years, we see the same thing from Joseph. He winds up rising in power within the prison. He winds up, the prison guards putting everything under his care. The prisoners are being blessed by him being there and being in charge. And he has free reign to do whatever in that prison. And then we see that there's two men that come in. They're sent to the prison by the king. And they both have a dream. And Joseph interprets those dreams. And one, it was like, eh, you're going to die. Sorry. And the other one was going to be restored back to his place with Pharaoh. And so Joseph said, please, when you're restored back to that place, remember me. And the guy's, oh, yeah, 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 of course. Like, I didn't get that prophecy, you know. I didn't, I'm going to at least make it. So, of course, I will if I make it through this. But the guy forgot. Now, I'm just going to say, like, if I had a prophetic word that I'm going to be restored and my buddy got one that he was going to die and it happened like that, I would remember every day of my life. But for two years... It said that Joseph stayed in prison because he forgot. But then God gave Pharaoh two dreams, and no one could interpret Pharaoh's two dreams. And so um, this guy was suddenly like, oh, yeah, there's this guy two years ago. Oh, man, I told him that I would remember. But, yeah, he can actually interpret dreams. So they called Joseph up. And he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, and he said that there's going to be seven years of plenty in the land, that the harvest is going to abound, there's going to be so much abundance, and then after that, there's going to be seven years of famine that's worse than the world has ever known. And Joseph was like, and I actually have an idea. I think what we should do is we should collect in the seven years of plenty, store it, so that way we have enough during the famine. And Pharaoh was a smart guy, because what Pharaoh said is, that is a great plan, you do it. You do it. And so we see that nearly 30 years later that God has set Joseph up to fulfill those dreams that he had given him all those years ago that we know Joseph had been holding on to and believing for. God set him up for that because God is faithful and he never fails us, right? Amen. He always fulfills his promises. And so anyway, so his brothers come. We're in the famine time. His brothers come, and they're like, we're starving. We need to buy grain. And Joseph, can you imagine, he's standing there, and it's like, whoa. I haven't seen these guys in 30 years. And they didn't recognize him. He could have done anything. He could have refused them grain and sent them home. Certainly deserve that. You tried to kill me. Here you go. Um, but that's not what Joseph did. And after a period of time of collecting all of his brothers to Egypt, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And I want to read to you in Genesis 45, starting in verse 2, how Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. And it says, And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Come near me. So they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For these two years the famines have been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. 
And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And so now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all this house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Those are not the words of a man who is angry. Those are not the words of a man who has been sitting for 30 years in bitterness, nor is his life an example of one, because had he held on to bitterness, he would not be there. But those are words of a man who forgave, who chose to look on a situation and chose to see people who are imperfect, because that's who we are. We are imperfect people. But he chose to also keep his eyes focused on a God who is bigger than people's imperfection. And he chose to let go of all that and say, God, you deal with all of that. I'm going to keep my eyes focused on you. I'm going to forgive, and I'm going to let you take care of it. Unforgiveness keeps the wounds open. They keep them fresh. You know you're in unforgiveness if you can still feel every ounce of pain that happened however long ago it was. I know when I'm in unforgiveness and I recognize this in myself because I start to fight with the other person in my head. Is that weird? Do, no one else does that? You don't have a conversation to where you say, no, no, you know, no, I told you that you should not do that, you hurt me. And then they say, well, no. Okay, well, they talk back to me, but it is a sign. It's like, wait a minute, um, this is not good. I'm starting to get into unforgiveness. And I have to repent and let that thing go because if not, it turns into bitterness. And then bitterness, the Bible says, dries our bones. It dries our bones. We have to let go of the wounds and the pain, and we have to give those to God so that he can heal them, so that our mind can stay focused on him. Because that's what unforgiveness does. It, it keeps our focus right there on that wound and that pain and that hurt, and it keeps us in prison. Joseph chose to forgive. And he was able to fulfill all that God called him to. See, it seems as Christians, oftentimes, that we find ourselves battling more from a position of defense rather than offense. We kind of find ourselves, you know, trying to push our way up the mountain, fight our way up the mountain, then fighting from the top of the mountain down where we have the advantage point. And I believe that it's because we haven't kept our mind guarded in the way that we are called to. And so we're fighting what from a place where the enemy has control in our lives. See, Jesus addresses sinful behavior as originating in the thought life prior to the action. And he gave two examples, and he said, you know, adultery is a sin, but actually that sin began with lusting in your heart. And murder is a sin, but actually that sin began by being angry in your heart. Because we learn whatever is the thoughts that kind of roll around in our mind over and over and over, eventually they become our actions. We can't separate the two. Philippians 4 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. See, Jesus is telling us, he's like, listen, you're not going to win this battle if you try to not think angry thoughts or try to not think bad thoughts or whatever, you know, lustful thoughts. You win the battle by thinking the right thoughts. 
And he's saying, so whatever is good, whatever is from me, whatever you see that is a blessing, whatever you see, because everything good is from God, right? Good originates from God. So think on those good things and you will win the battle. And see, I've noticed this in my own life and I, with my kids, not that I think a bunch of bad thoughts about my kids, just every once in a while. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, you guys do too, I know it. Uh, but I find with my kids that when I'm thinking about them as a group and I'm trying to get them dressed and get them fed and, and get them to bed and please go to bed and take a nap and, you know, I'm trying to get them through their day, that I begin treating them like, like I'm managing them. Like, like a project, like an accomplishment to get done. But when I take my kids and I see them individually and I start to see and focus on the gifts that God has put in them, I start to see his hand on them. I start to pay attention to how he uses them in my life and in the lives of people around them. I no longer manage them as a group because I'm seeing them differently. I'm thinking about them differently. I'm allowing my thoughts to be God's thoughts towards them so then I see the purpose on their life that he placed in them. It was there all along. It's always there. It's just where I choose to set my focus. Lastly, the Bible tells us that we are to take our thoughts captive to take them captive, and Pastor Matt preached, and he said that word captive, it means kind of like holding it at spear point, or I like gun point. Guns are way more dangerous than spears. Um, but when that first thought comes into our mind, that very first thought, that's not a sin, usually, it's the very first one, that's the bait of the enemy. And what the Bible is telling us when he tells us to take that thought captive, he's saying, listen, you have to know that that's the bait of the enemy and you have to counteract that with the truth. You have to say that's not of God. When he says that you're a failure, I am a child of God, so that can't be true because God says that I am his child. And so you take it captive and you don't allow it to get a place in your mind. But when we allow that thought to rest, when we allow it to sit there and we say, oh yeah, actually, I probably am not good enough. Then we accept it and we let it in. And then the enemy starts to build brick by brick, a stronghold, a place that he can inhabit, a place that he can control of fear or of depression or of worry or whatever it is in our minds because we did not take that original thought captive. And then once he does that, then we have to have Jesus to come and break that thing down. What I'm trying to get you guys to see is that the battle is in our minds. And really, God has left us. He has positioned us on the top of that mountain in a place of victory if we will recognize us. He's put us there and letting us know, hey, it's in your thoughts. It's in your mind. And I've given you the answer, the truth of my word. Fill yourself with it. Walk in integrity by that thing. And when the enemy comes, you'll know when it's a lie. And you grab that thing and you renounce it in the name of Jesus so that you are fighting from a place of offense rather than a place of defense.